you know, for a little while we were just this little random niche sport, like, okay, great. But now we really are driving mainstream and main street economic development. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effects is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 75 features 2003 Mountain Bike Hall of Fame inductee Ashley Kornblatt. Ashley has been involved with mountain biking and advocacy since nearly the beginning. As a member of the IMBA Board of Directors starting in 1990 and eventually serving as board president from 1996 to 2000. Ashley is also the owner of Western Spirit Cycling Adventures, a touring company that provides experiences for beginners to advanced riders, with over 50 tours offered across the nation. But wait, there's more! Ashley is also the owner of Outer Bike the best bike demo event in the universe, with events in Moab, Utah, and Bentonville, Arkansas in 2022, and many more locations in 2023. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. Additional support for Trail Effect comes from Giants Ridge and Ride the Range in northern Minnesota. Check out Volumes 1, 2, and 3 of the Range Report to learn more about what's happening in northern Minnesota at the Ride the Range Trail Systems and Giants Ridge. The Trail Effect Patreon account is live again also, so if you find value in the content found on Trail Effect, you have a way that you can donate for that value. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Ashley Kornblatt. Here we go. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Ashley Kornblatt. Ashley is a Mountain Bike Hall of Fame member from 2003. She was listed as a most important woman in cycling by Bike Magazine in 1997. And she's got a whole bunch of other things that she's had her hands in, such as part of NIMBA in the early days of mountain biking. She was CEO of Merlin Metalworks. She put President Bill Clinton on a bike, on a Merlin mountain bike at that, before he was president. She transitioned into IMBA in the early years of IMBA when IMBA really took off as far as growth and everything goes. And now she is a managing director at the public land solutions organization based out of Moab. She is also the owner of Western Spirit Cycling Tours, Outer Bike, and then she created a cool little thing called Your Friend in the Bike Business. Did I miss anything? How's it going today, Ashley? Great, great. It's, um, it's just starting to get hot in Moab. It's been really nice, but we're so lucky here because we have the mountains, you know, just up the road. Yeah, well, let's get into some of those early years with you, specifically, one, how you found the mountain bike, two, how you went from Arkansas to Dartmouth up in the northeast and became a ski racer, 
and then how you transitioned into everything else. Well, let's see. I, I had, uh, someone had a mountain bike when I was in business school, one of my friends, and I, it was way too big for me. And I took it on this tiny little section of trail and I was instantly hooked. So that was pretty much that. And then, um, I, let's see, my first mountain bike was a Fisher Who Kui Koo that I bought right before I got the job at Merlin. So I didn't ride that bike very long because then I got a Merlin. Dartmouth, let's see, they, I was really lucky. It was Title IX, actually, that they needed more women on the ski team. And my roommate was a ski racer from Idaho. And she talked to me to going to practice and, and we went skiing at Killington and she lent me her skis. I had boots for some reason. But she lent me skis, her GS skis that were 195s. Imagine on the Killington ice on 195s. I don't even know how I survived, but I was really lucky. They were really supportive and it was a a great thing because if I hadn't spent so much time working on my turns at Dartmouth, my husband definitely wouldn't have married me because I wouldn't have been able to keep up in Crested Butte on a powder day. Let's talk about that transition into Merlin. I mean, Merlin, I think... For people who are newer to mountain biking, they may not know what Merlin Metalworks is, but Merlin was really one of the companies that pioneered super lightweight mountain bikes and road bikes. And obviously the precursor to carbon fiber when, you know, people didn't really know what plastic was at that point when it came to tubing. Yeah. Yeah. Carbon fiber still had a lot of problems. And so titanium was just a great material to work with. You had to be really respectful of it and treat it the right way. But the bikes were amazing. And I met the guy who founded Merlin. And I, uh, I went to business school after Dartmouth and then worked on Wall Street for a little while. And then one thing led to another. And I wrote a business plan in exchange for a bike at Merlin. So I got there. And when I got hired, there were four guys that worked there. And I was walking around with a piece of paper trying to figure out how much tubing we had. And they basically said, are you going to Dunkin' Donut? Like, like, like we, we went to Dunkin' Donuts twice a day. And every time we hired someone new, that person had to go to Dunkin' Donuts. And we had this bike that was painted matte black with these giant baskets and Dunkin' Donuts pink grips. And whoever the newest hire was had to, had to go to Dunkin' Donuts twice a day. It was ridiculous. Wow. That is, <laughs> that is pretty incredible. And Merlin, you know, went on to, to be a bike manufacturer for some really notable athletes. Oh yeah. We got to work with everyone. I mean, like I had already given away bikes to Lance Armstrong and the, and the Subaru Montgomery team, but Lance wasn't even famous yet. And Greg Lamont called the, that team called and they said, we would like bikes. We need 80 bikes and $30,000. And I said, how, how, why do you need so many bikes? And they said, they're going to break. I'm like, no, these aren't, these are not going to break. And, uh, and then, but we looked at it and we said, you know, we have people waiting eight months for a bike. We cannot give you any bikes right now. We really can't. And they said, that's fine. We'll buy them. We made like 25 custom bikes for the Z team. And somehow bicycling magazine found out and the, the cover on bicycling was the bikes Le Mans A's to ride. Wow. <laughs> so we were already slammed and then we, yeah, it was, it was very fun ride in many ways. We, we went racing every weekend from Somerville, Mass in New England. I actually, my husband was at one of those races. There are results that prove that we were at the same races in New England. 
but he was uh, nine years younger than me and in college, and I wouldn't have given him the time of day if I'd met him then anyway, but uh, but it's kind of fun to look back on that. I love this history stuff. I mean, it's such an important part of our sport or our activity, you know, and the activity is still primarily pretty young. In the big scheme of things, definitely. Yeah. Let's talk about how you transitioned into, you got involved with NEMBA from what I can tell probably prior to IMBA. Yeah. How did you find IMBA from NEMBA? Because IMBA was a West Coast thing more so than. Yeah. I remember this dinner. Well, so for, for NIMBA, my friend Heidi Davis Falk, she started it. Heidi Davis started NIMBA and it was getting overwhelming. Like there were huge stacks of checks on her, uh, in her hallway because everybody wanted to help out and open more trails. And she, we had to like create a board of directors and divvy up the jobs. Like one person's job was just to take the checks to the bank. Like it, it was definitely, um, you know, crazy growth time for mountain biking. But what happened with Emba, I think we were at a trade show on the East Coast, it's like Atlantic City, maybe. I mean, this was really ancient history. But um, Jim Hasenauer tracked me down and we went to dinner. And the next thing I knew, I was on the Emba board. There was a whole group of us that went to dinner and it was a really fun dinner. I remember there was a lot of wine because Ted Costantino was there and he was always insisted on tasting all of the wine. And, um, but yeah, and, and IMBA was very much just starting out and going from a volunteer organization to a professional organization. And it became really clear that, you know, mountain biking was going to need to prove the value of our constituency, that it wasn't, you know, there was a history of IMBA. There was a time when every day a trail didn't close to mountain biking was a good day. So we had to think through how do we work with the land managers and prove that having mountain bikers in a certain place is a good thing for everybody, that we would take care of the trails, we'd paint the picnic tables, that we'd do whatever we had to do. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, there's a tendency to think, okay, we got to fight for our rights, right? And some rights, maybe you do, but, but the way the public land system works is that we hire these people to manage the public lands, whether it's city, state, county, federal, whatever. And those people have certain rules they have to follow. And if you don't fit into that paradigm, you don't get to go. There's no right to ride your bike. It's always been hard to say, it's not about fighting. It's about making friends and being of value. So sometimes, and there's tons of examples where you can really see where the making friends uh, thing works. Let's get into some of those early days. I know I, was, I did a bunch of research on you and listened to some other podcasts and you talked about raising funds at Interbike mm. to fund the first executive director. Let's talk about how that started out and where it landed. Cause I think it's interesting how it started out and what you got it to. Well, basically it started out that people said, we said, we need to raise money to grow our sport in general, because our sport depends on access to public land. And if we don't participate in the public land conversation, we're not going to have access and we won't have a sport. It's, and a lot, a lot of the folks said, you know, sure, we'll give you this case of water bottles. And it was Linda Dupriest and I, and we said, no, you know, we need hard, cold cash. Like we have to have, uh, we have to start thinking about having a presence in DC. We have to think about 
cataloging best practices of how to manage trails and how to build trails so that we become the experts on this. And that's going to cost money. And so it, it was fine. I remember running into Zap and we were really excited because we just gotten someone to give us a check. And he said, and we were like, have you heard what you're, we're doing? And he says, yes, you're going around terrorizing everyone. And, uh, and we said, fine. Yes, that is. That's it. That's what we're doing. Terrorizing everyone. But it, it's, a, it's a really interesting problem because now, you know, we own the 18 inches of dirt that is the trail. We are the worldwide expert on trail building. Nobody is even close. And we're crushing it. And we're, we're coming up with all these great things. But we are not big enough players on the public land overall public land community. We are not as big as we could be. We could we could wield more influence and be more valuable, but we need to kind of pick our heads up and look beyond the 18 inches of dirt and start really getting more involved on the in the bigger public land picture. Yeah. Speaking of that 18 inches of dirt, one of the things and I mean you were really involved with with Imba when a lot of new initiatives came out. And one of those things was the Imba Trail Care Crew. Kind of what what went into the thinking behind that and how that was created. And the reason why I ask is because I've had, I've, I'm friends with Mike Ryder, who was part of that first Amber Trail Care crew, and I've had him on the show. And so we've had his version of getting sent from Georgia to Utah. Yeah. He came to here first. He, he, he stayed at the Western Spirit Building on that first trip on the first and worked on the Slick Rock Trail. Well, so the idea was Tim Blumenthal's, and it was a really brilliant idea. And the problem was who, who was going to pay for it. And both Specialized and Trek were interested. And I felt like we had to get a non-endemic sponsor because the minute we gave our biggest project to one brand in our industry, we wouldn't be representing everyone. And so that was hard because I kept saying no, that we couldn't take the money. And But then when we got Subaru, that was a 25-year deal. I mean, there's hardly a county in the country that wasn't touched by that program, either just giving a speech about trail building or actually moving dirt and doing something on a trail. So it was, it was a really great idea. And it really, it, it, it's definitely a big piece of how we got to where we are today as mountain bikers who really are, you know, trail building experts. Yeah. And I know in, in talking to Gary Silquist, he, he really credits Imbo with a lot of their success in Minnesota. Sure. And I know living in La Crosse, Wisconsin, we had Imba Trail Care crews here three times, I want to say. And that led up to, which we're not going to open this can of worms, but that led up to becoming a potential Imba ride center in what would have been 2007 or eight. Sure. Yeah. You can read on the message boards or Facebook or whatever it is now that Imba gets, sometimes they get some heat. But the reality mm-hmm. is, I don't think I can't find or think of another organization that has impacted mountain biking in such a positive way. And right now, they're, I mean, they're killing it again with everything they're doing. Yeah. So you could do a whole case study about the right turns and the wrong turns that IMBA has made. And and, and any organization, nobody grows in a straight line. You have to try one thing and go a different direction and make an adjustment. And without IMBA, it would have been a lot of disseparate groups doing incredible work, like across the country. And that, that's always been the tension. And actually, NICA has this challenge, too, that 
you, you know, you create a national organization to get things going and to, and to play a certain role. And then the local organizations, when they're having a good run, they don't really need you so much. And then something happens either at the federal level or a funding issue or a leadership kerfuffle or whatever. And um, then suddenly you need that support of the national organization. So it's definitely challenging and it's not perfect. But for me, it comes down to this, this realization that fighting is not going to get you anything and, and standing up and, you know, demanding things doesn't work. And so some of those challenges for Imba just go to the wilderness thing. Like this idea that if we just fight for our right to ride in wilderness, we will win. If we were just man up enough to, to, uh, to go for it and, and demand it, we would win. And that's such a um, naive and really, you got to think it through to, to understand it. And the Wilderness Act was the first time we as a species ever said that anything on the planet was not just available to us to do whatever we wanted to. And, you know, in the time of climate change, do you really want to be attacking the founding legislation of the modern environmental movement? Is that what side you want to be on? Just so you can get one more trail experience? And so that, and, and people got really, that thing got so out of whack. Like you would ask people, what do you think is the biggest threat to trails? Or, or how many trails do you think, what percentage of trails are affected by wilderness? And people would say something like 40%. And that was insanely wrong. It's less than 1%. So, and, and today, if you look at, you know, I think there's over 100,000 miles of ready to ride trail in America right now. And if you added wilderness, the trails in the wilderness, that would be maybe 101,000, maybe. And so it, it just, it really got out of proportion and it turned into this fight versus negotiate thing. And, uh, and just bottom line, you have to negotiate. It's, we are, democracy is about negotiating. We live in a democracy, the public land is owned by all Americans and you got to start there. And if you start anywhere else, like I really want to ride this and the presence of a bike is not hurting the land and they're wrong. And what about the horses? You know, none of those things matter. The important thing to understand is we're so lucky to have all this public land and to learn how to work within the system. And, and we have, we're crushing it. Every community right now, it is amazing what we're seeing. Public Land Solutions works with rural communities that are looking to use recreation as part of their economic development strategies. And it used to be if you were the mayor of a small town, sewer, water, police. Now it's sewer, water, police, trails. We, we are mainstream. So sure, there are some interesting twists and turns along the way. But right now, uh, it, it seems like trails and the pandemic really helped us. Like more communities want more, even more trails now. Yeah. And there's a couple tangents we can go with that. The tangent that I want to go on before we get into the public land solutions is You've spoken about how when conservation and recreation fight oil and gas or some other entity outside of those two entities actually win. Sure. Let's dive into that dynamic so we can kind of teach or like expose what really happens when, when we actually have some infighting essentially. So the conservation community, it's sort of this funny idea that some people are environmentalists and others aren't. You know, there was that ad, it was a really, really long time ago, even I was really young when this ad came out. 
And it was a Native American in a canoe, and he's paddling along, and he starts seeing trash in the river. And then he goes up on the bank, and people are throwing trash out of their cars onto the road, and it's going into the river. And the tagline is something like, some people care about the land, and some people don't. And the Native American has a tear going down and his face. And so this idea that you can choose to not be an environmentalist, well, if you're a human, you depend on the planet. So you really don't get to opt out of that, of being an environmentalist. But what does that mean? It, it means that we all need to be thinking about our actions and what we're doing and the, the unintended consequences of everything that we do. But what happens in the public land community is if they're, if the conservation community is using their resources to fight outdoor recreation, then they're not using those resources to negotiate with resource extraction. So every dollar that gets spent where we're pushing back on the conservation community or they're pushing back on us, the people who are winning are oil and gas, coal. I mean, right now, what we really need to be worried about is mining lithium. We need to start really thinking about what are the rules going to be that the governing laws for mining are the, it, you know, it's the 1872 uh, Mining Act. So a few things have changed since then. And that's something that we should get involved in because we're about to do some mining for lithium. And I know that seems really far-fetched. Like, I just want to ride my bike. I'm a mountain biker. Why would I care about mining reform? Well, if it comes and destroys your favorite trail, suddenly you're going to care a whole bunch about it. And generally speaking, if we're going to ride an e-bike and you've got a lithium battery in there or anything that was mined in that e-bike, you know, you need to think about what does it mean for mining. And, and in fact, you have not just a responsibility to think about, but a right to speak out on it. Like the mining community needs to hear from us because we're the consumer of what the, of the thing that they're mining. So there's a lot of um, siloing in the, in the conservation and recreation world. And people are afraid to speak about things they're not experts on. But the reality is the public land community needs to be more, uh, you know, think bigger and look bigger and, and act bigger. So as a mountain biker, yes, now add to your to-do list, support mining and oil and gas reform. Let's pivot into the other thing that land can be used for and how money can be made from it without extraction without clear cutting and with service and mm -hmm. the things that you guys are doing at the public land solutions. Sure. So um, public land solutions is a nonprofit recreation asset consultant. And I founded it about 10 years ago now. And Jason Keith, who is the attorney for the access fund. So climbing a mountaineering, and um, so he has experience kind of like mine. Uh, he was a guide in um, a mountaineering guide and climbing guide and then worked on the policy side. So he's been the policy person for, the, for them for a long time. And so his experience and my experience really matched up. Like there are not too many places where we haven't worked in that community or know people in that community or know the problem they're having. But what we realized is there were user groups and conservation groups and industry groups but nobody really working on it from the community's perspective. So Public Land Solutions now does two, two things. We work directly with communities that are planning to invest or have chosen to invest in outdoor recreation assets as part of their economic development strategies. 
So trails, climbing areas, water access, that kind of thing. And then we also work on the policies, both state and federal policies that affect their ability to do that. So we work a lot on getting the Land and Water Conservation Fund reauthorized and funded. And we're working on oil and gas and mining reform. So let's dive into how that relates to more urban centers and more urban areas and places that are really, you know, we, and I've said this for quite a while and I know, and I know you've, I mean, this is something that you, you live in literally, but a lot of the, the really good stories of where mountain bike trails and outdoor recreation have really succeeded are in those, the mining communities, like we're talking about, or communities that had their one industry, like just leave. And so now they're looking to reinvent themselves. Right. But how about the communities that maybe have really good industry? They maybe have a really diverse job market, but now we're in a time of remote working and people being able to live literally where they want to live more based on recreation or whatever their hobby is versus their career path. And so how can other communities really capitalize on outdoor recreation and that path? So, you know, it's about making it easy to get outside. And it's also about having the right product mix of activities. And, you know, multiple use on the same trail or same acre generally doesn't really work at any kind of volume. So looking at making sure that you have the right type of access for the right groups and that, you know, sometimes like the things that we see making the most difference are close to town trails, right? Stacked loops that are close to town. That's what really people want. And so in urban areas, it's a, it's a little bit harder, but we're seeing all kinds of creative solutions in more urban areas. But in rural places, it, it's sort of a me- mechanism for redistributing the crowds. So there are certain companies that have moved from Southern California to Boulder, Colorado, and oh, geez, their employees are still stuck in traffic and no one can um, afford a house. And so as people start looking further afield, like if you look at Kitspo, what they did, they moved to Old Fort, North Carolina and are really, you know, helping revive Main Street, hiring people, working on trails. They're really making a big difference in that community. And we see that in smaller ways from other like Osprey in Cortez, Colorado. There's there's just a lot of opportunity to go move your company or or your a small business to a smaller community where you'll be able to, uh, you know, where, where things are slightly more affordable. There's a housing crunch, crunch happening everywhere right now. But we just did a project, Public Land Solutions did a project in Natarita, speaking of trail care crew, their coal-fired power plant was scheduled to, cl- had closed already actually, and people were leaving town. And there was a fight between the trail people and the wildlife people, and they got themselves into pretty solid gridlock. No progress was being made. So we came and backed everyone up a little bit, looked really closely at the different areas that they were looking at. Turns out the one place that they wanted to build trails had been revegetated for elk. And if they put trails in there, there was fear that the elk would then go back down into the private land where the cows are, which is where the elk want to live anyway, but regardless. So we we didn't want to get in the elk-cow fight. And we looked at these other areas that the trail guys there thought was only a few thousand acres and really was 30,000 acres of, you know, when you really looked at the land use plan and and the way the topography works, the opportunity was on that side of town. 
we helped them hire Chris K. Meyer to design the trails. And uh, people are already buying houses in Natarita just, and the trails aren't even built yet. So it, it's definitely working, but it, it takes a lot of detailed work and thinking through what, what, what's going to be critical mass. How do you, you know, there are other places where people have built just a short amount of trail and it's not enough, right? Or they have one little climbing area or they have one little lake, but they don't have enough to really say, okay, this is a place for fishing or this is a place for paddling. So a lot of what we do is look at how do you, how do you optimize and get to that critical mass. And then it becomes sort of the reputation of the community. And as a company, part of your brand is your address, right? So if your brand and the brand of the community where you want to move to or thinking of match, that, um, that can be pretty powerful in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And you brought up Chris Kmeyer and, and he's, he's came up a couple of times on this podcast through other guests and some of the stuff that he's done, in, especially in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Well, and we have so many people, Joey Klein, and we have so many, I mean, I can't even, that's the thing we are crushing it on is trail design. And it's super important and it's really good. But we also need to be doing more on the big picture public land situation because we could just have our head down building that perfect berm and miss out on some really important decisions about how we're going to use our public land. Yeah, for sure. I know I've been asked, you know, a lot of times, you know, what do you, you know, especially where I live, like, what do we need for more trails? Mm -hmm. And I keep telling them we need access and we need plans. Right. If we have access and we have plans, I've never seen the money not follow to actually build the product. Oh yeah. Especially right now there, if you have a good plan and it's more about like conflict or getting, it's about getting community support. A, a big part of what public land solutions does is work with the community to really iron it out and figure out that, okay, we're not going to run the ranchers out of town by building some mountain bike trails. We're going to, we're going to complement what exists here and complement everybody wants to keep their authenticity and the, and the feeling of their town. And which is not easy because change is happening everywhere, right? I was speaking at this rural development conference about all these cool places and all these great things happening. And this one woman raised her hand and said, do you have examples of places that are just staying the same? You know, sister, that, that's not a choice. That's really, you're either growing or dying. And, and so a lot of communities realize they need to take charge of it. They want to make sure that they're, you know, if you get ahead of it, you can control where the visitors go. You can, you can, do the right zoning to keep your community balanced and more livable. So it is uh, finding ways for to do effective planning are really critical. And, and that's why Mount Baker is getting more involved in their local government. I mean, the scariest thing that could happen, and this is could happen, pick somewhere, San Diego, right? The San Diego, everybody's fit. Everybody wants to get outside. There's great weather all the time. Mountain bikers have built all kinds of trail. There is trail there. But you know what? Some county commissioners are going to get elected someday, and they're going to say, hmm, we have more constituents that have feet than our, than bicycles. And we're just going to close those trails because it's crowded out there, and we need more trails. And we just, you know, like the threats to mountain biking, we need to be really understanding what they are today not these made up threats of wilderness or past issues. We need to really be looking forward or how do we continue to integrate biking into mainstream 
activities that communities want to do. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I've found with plans is that when you actually have a plan, you can show it to people. Right. And when people can actually see what the possibilities are, then they can rally behind it and understand what's really going to happen instead of just saying, oh, we want to put trails over here. Yeah, it, that's a huge point. It sounds pretty simple, but it's a huge point because a lot of trail advocates just are like a dog with a bone. Like, I want this trail super narrow-minded. And and whereas you really get, um, you really make more progress when your trail is part of a bigger package for outdoor access, a bigger part of the community's future. That's when you get traction because now all these people who might not be trail people will start to work for your trail because it's part of a bigger a bigger effort in that community. Yeah. Well, speaking of effort and community, let's transition to businesses. You've got a couple of businesses. Yep. Let's learn about <laughs> Western Spirit. Sure. Then we'll go on to the rest of them. Well, Western Spirit is a, we're outfitters. We do, we um, take people on multi-day bike trips on the public lands. It's kind of crazy, but that is what we do. We do backcountry trips that are pretty hard to do on your own. And it's really about the funnest thing you can do. You don't have to think. You're just riding, eating, looking at the scenery. It's a pretty amazing formula for getting away. It, you know, the, you care about your phone maybe the first day. And by the third day, you don't even know where it is. Around here somewhere. Uh, but you don't care. And you, it, it teaches you to, it gives you the opportunity to live in the moment, which is pretty darn rare these days. Yeah, being president is definitely tough with, every, with all of the different distractions coming at us. What are some examples of some trips that you guys take? Because you're based out of of Moab, but you literally do trips around the country. Yeah. So we do trips that are super easy, fun trips that my mother-in-law did for her first first 70s birthday. We did uh, in the Grand Staircase Escalante. So double track. The van is always following. Nothing technical about it at all. And then we do all the way to five days above 10,000 feet on the Colorado Trail that is, you know, the real thing and everything in between. So the Umpqua River Trail in Oregon is a great one. The, um, we, we have a lot of single track trips. We're doing a bunch of trips in South Dakota right now that there's some fun single track there and it's right on the lake. And um, that's, a really, that's a really fun place. There's an advanced trip there and, a, and an intermediate trip that's just really fun single track and camping and swimming every night. So, but we work in 17 states now. So they're, they're generally five day trips, a few or four days, and you show up and you just need to bring a puffy and a few pair of bike shorts. No, pretty much. <laughs> That's all you really need because the guides do all the cooking and the um, vehicle carries all the gear. So it's not, you roll into camp and the, the guides are, have a hugest bowl of guacamole you can imagine and cold beer and, you know, they're making fajitas. And all you do is set up your tent and have a seat. It's super fun. And people think, oh, well, don't you want help? And you don't need to help. It's fine. <laughs> so it's pretty darn fun. You also started Outer Bike. Right. So the idea behind Outer Bike was, you know, we see people come on Western Spirit trips and they're, they've got their group of friends. Some people will book a whole trip. The trips are, you just need like 10 to 13 people to, to fill a whole trip. So people have groups that come every year and, and uh, 
you know, we just, everyone would be on the same bike just because one or two people got that bike. Right. And so I just thought it'd be fun to pull everyone together and let the people ride the bikes. And because the way Moab is set up with a stacked loop and, and the, the way the trail systems are and other places have this advantage too, but we have this huge parking lot right next to a stacked loop system. So the first year there were way too many bikes and not enough people because no one knew what we were doing. Right. Demo a bike. What does that mean? And, and, uh, and, but the next year there were way too many people and not enough bikes. And because people figured out that you were going on a real ride. Um, we have like, you pay for the event and that includes all your food and beer and, and it's very, it's like a VIP tent for, for three days. The caterer is a saint. Um, the chef that we work with, he's amazing um, because he just never <laughs> runs out of anything. But that, the, the second year when, the, when so many people came, then all the companies looked up because the people started lining up at 7 a.m. to run to the booths and that got everyone's attention. And so then from then on, we've, we've been able to get pretty much every rental bike available to come to Outer Bike. And uh, it's just such a great opportunity to really find the perfect bike for you and to go on a real ride for three days in a row on three or four or six or eight or however many you want different bikes and figure out what feels right to you. And so many of the new smaller companies, really people who never, you know, you come in thinking you're going to buy this and you fall in love with something else. And it just kind of spreads out the love, but, and it gives the companies a chance to really talk to the, people the consumers and find out what's going on and then the other part about it that's great is the places where we're doing it really want to be known as bike centers and so we're for next year we're going to be able to do killington vermont duluth duluth isn't that exciting and um uh crested butte and then moab and bentonville so the weirdest thing about the whole thing is that these people come up to me who've been to outer bike and they give me a big hug and they're like, it was the greatest weekend ever. And I'm like, really? Like I would say, I would be happy with, thank you for organizing a good event. (laughs) But I think what makes it so fun is that you're just getting to hang out with other people who really care about cycling and there's no other agenda. Like there, there are no races. There's no band. I mean, we have music, but it, it's very focused on going riding, hanging out with the other, the learning about the bikes, going riding, and then going into the town and learning about that town, like enjoying what's in that community. And we, at the beginning, we had movies and we've done some parties. Uh, we had this heavy metal mariachi band one time that was amazing that SRAM sponsored. But the reality is everyone's exhausted by the time you ride all day and then go out to dinner, it's kind of, you're a little bit done you know, it's just a great opportunity to really meet the people that are working on the bikes, to really learn about the company and to just find the right bike for you. So it's, it's a little bit of magic of bringing everyone together. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to sidetrack a little bit. Cause I have a, I have a question that just popped into my brain. You said Battenville, we've had Battenville featured slash Arkansas featured people on this podcast. A lot of times it's actually probably what really got this podcast started. Sure. And you came from Arkansas prior to moving away for college. Did you see 
Arkansas as a whole becoming the powerhouse that it has in the cycling community? Not at all. I mean, I know that, you know, the Waltons, um, Tom and Stuart were really supportive of IMBA and they showed up at lots of IMBA events. And, and I, I mean, they have been, we've, we've done some projects talking about recreation economy and the power of um, quality of life. They helped with a congressional briefing that we did in in DC, some folks from the family foundation, but it's very, they made it fun to live there. And anyone can do it. I mean, they have some beautiful areas there for sure. But I mean, Fruta, like think about the Fruta trails. They're right next to the interstate and they're super fun. So you don't, what's so great about it is, sure, it's great if you've got some beautiful areas and you should take care of those, but you don't need like any place that you can sort out public access, you can build trails. And they've done a great job of that too. It's not like they were blessed with a ton of public land right there in Bentonville. They had to really kind of work to put it together. And that's what it comes, you know, for me, it just keeps coming back to that. Like if you don't have land that is shared, you know, by everyone, then it's really difficult to get the benefits of this. But they've, they've really figured out how to do it. And they have become, you know, on steroids, trail building experts, which is great. And the other amazing thing they've done too is the restaurants. Like in in these communities where we're helping them build trails, like Natarita is going to need some more restaurants soon, right? And how how we can support those folks in the same way that we're supporting the trail building um, piece would be worth looking into because that's that's a, a big part of it. Until you get the brewery and the bakery, right? You're not really winning. So oh, for sure, and. That comes up in almost every every interview I do is is the brewery and and I bring up in every interview that we do when the brewery comes up the wood fired pizza place, <laughs> right? Like what's really important, you know? So and yeah, a really good case study with this and this started back in the '90s but didn't really come to fruition until the mid 2000s is is Cuyuna, Northern Minnesota. You know that's right. We've been talking about Cuyuna on the podcast quite a bit lately, but the reality is is that you know is again a mining community that you know, lost its mind or, or, you know, the industry went away. Mountain bike trails came, but not only did mountain bike trails come, came, come along with it. A lot of businesses like popped up, like people realized they could actually capitalize on what came with the trails. Right. That's right. And that, that's the really important part of, you know, that, that community connection, because it's, you know, for a little while we were just this little random niche sport, like, okay, great. But now we really are driving mainstream and main street economic development. And that is something that we should pay attention to, take credit for, get more involved, because the key to maintaining and growing access, really. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to get back into your businesses now. (laughs) Because as part of Outer Bike... You created, you had this, you had this great idea to create your friend in the bike business. And I don't even know how many times I've been asked. And I know obviously you've been asked, which is, this is why you created this, but Hey, you're a mountain biker. What should I get for a bike? I know. And And you're just like, like, uh, where do I start? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, right now it's whatever's available, but the reality is in a perfect world, it's like, well, are you going to mountain bike a lot or a little? Are you going to, what are you like, what are you going to do with it? How tall are you? Like all the things that your friend in the bike business tries to answer. Sure. 
So that we, um, when the pandemic happened, everyone was, are you going to do a virtual outer bike? And the answer was definitely not. <laughs> and, uh, but we started thinking before the bike shortage really became apparent, it was clear that people really, you know, the whole, the words cross country, all mountain, what, what do those mean? And, and, you know, at outer bike, people, people would go into a booth and sometimes the folks in the booth would be like 27.5 or 29. And they're like, I don't know even what that means, you know? And we, one of the things, problems that we have a little bit in biking in skiing, you know, if you ski one week a year, the ski industry and you yourself are proud to call yourself a skier. There's no problem there. Yes, I'm a skier. Ski one week a year. We go on vacation every, every year. And in, in biking, if you've been off the bike two weeks, you're afraid to call yourself a cyclist, right? So there's this little bit of just how about we chill out a little bit and be more inviting and more inclusive. And so we haven't updated your friend in the bike business. It, it needs a new boost because so much of the inventory was gone. We kind of calmed down on that for a little while. But it's I, I, I'm excited to bring it back and fluff it up because we really work to ask a lot of questions, um, more questions than any other bike finder does, and get you at least to a category, right? And 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 tell you why you're in that category. Like you need, you live in a place you're not going to do tons of big downhilling. You don't need to carry around this big heavy bike. You've got sort of smooth terrain. So these are the category of bikes that you, that you should look at, and and this is why. And so we didn't. So I think there's still a lot of room to work on this. We want to continue and we're looking at how to help people get prepared for outer bike, how to think about it. If, if you aren't a geek that's been studying it and that's already drooling over three different bikes to help people at a more, and I want to bring the price point down too, like have more, we need to be really open and entry level, like to make sure that there is an entrance to the sport and that it doesn't, you can't play unless you're buying a $10,000 bike. That's no good. So we're hoping to really go back to your friend in the bike business and work on it more as we ramp up outer bikes again and, and try to uh, give that info to people so that they have a reason for a category. And even if they end up pivoting away from that category, they know why, as opposed to just because so many people is crazy. They just bought a bike, any bike. And it was no, it was, that was great, but now it's time to sort of probably recalibrate. Oh yeah, for sure. And a lot of times I bought a bike cause her friend had that bike. Right. That's a major thing. And it's just not always the right bike for you. So. Yes. Well, we're going to get, we're getting to the last couple of questions that I ask almost everybody. Sure. And this has become a favorite of mine. It's not a favorite of everyone else's. I think it's a listener favorite. I hope it is at least. Because sometimes it's supposed to be informational. It can be funny. But what is a famous failure? And that would be famous in your mind or in, you know, in your world. That doesn't mean like, oh, Ashley made the news today because of this, you know, but what's something that sticks out to you in terms of something that you tried and it just didn't go the way you thought it would go and you learned a lot from it? Sure. Well, this is a little bit wonky, but it was, it was very real. So a big part of what we do on the policy side at Public Land Solutions is work to get companies and individuals to speak up for reform, right? 
you've got these folks who have risked their lives at this point to run for public office and they're serving as elected officials and they're going to make decisions about how the land is used and what's happening out there and where the money is going to be spent. And so we're always working to influence that. And there was this one time when there was a proposal for greater Canyon lands and it would have, um, it would have protected a lot of the land around Canyonlands National Park, which is where we ride a lot in Moab. And a bunch of um, the conservation community was working really hard to, to get all these businesses, and this was at the OR show, to sign on to this letter. And they showed me a draft of the letter, and I just said, get all this wonk out of it and just say, protect Moab. And everyone will sign it, right? Done. No problem. So, so they did that, and everyone signed it. Hundreds of companies signed it. and. Then uh, they had planned to make it public later. It was during the Obama administration. And then they decided, okay, we're going to go public with it right away. And the news picked it up and they, um, you know, the Outdoor Industry Association signed it. And the first like 24 hours after the news picked it up, other companies that hadn't signed it were like, I want to sign it. I want to protect my lab. Why didn't anyone ask me, you know? And then it turned out there was another thing, a, a court case floating out there in the internet, also called Greater Canyon Lands. And that court case was supposed to close 3,000 miles of OHB trails in, in the Moab area. So the OHB community found that thing called Greater Canyon Lands and thought all these businesses were supporting closing all these roads. And they went berserk and started attacking everyone's Facebook page and everyone's freaking out. And the guy that was the head of Outdoor Industry Association, you know, basically, I was trying to tell everyone that's not our thing. It's okay. It's not, you know, and giving them the facts about it. And I called it the OIA proposal because the news was calling it that at that point. And the head of OIA at that time, Frank Hugelmeyer, he sends an email to every CEO in the outdoor industry that says, Ashley is wrong. And uh, so then I was like, okay, this is what the underside of the bus looks like. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that there was in this Greater Canyonlands proposal that, it, you know, I finally got a hold of some OHB people and said, what is the problem? And they said, on page 87, it says you're going to close all these roads. And I'm like, it's a two-page letter. What do you mean, 80 page 87? So we finally, you know, figured out what was, what was wrong. And, but it definitely taught me if you're going to go public with anything, you should probably Google it first and make sure no one else is using that name. And it also, and, and it's been sort of a cautionary tale because meanwhile, I'm spending all this time working on getting outdoor and bike companies to speak up for policy, but you have to be careful that you don't lead them into a trap, right? But it's still, even if, you know, nobody wants to be the person who made the decision to support something that gets your brand pummeled. But at the same time, as businesses, you have a real opportunity to influence the future. And if we're serious about climate change, you know, we're, we're going to have to speak up about mining reform and oil and gas and these issues that may be a little uncomfortable and maybe a little bit challenging, but that is how democracy works. And that's how we're going to solve these problems. So it was rough couple of weeks, but uh, I definitely learned a lot from it. We'll move on to the next segment because that, that was a good one, by the way. That was a good one. But our next one is, in your opinion, and you should have a strong opinion on this and a ton of experience, and you've already spoken on some things I'm sure you're going to speak on again here because this is kind of redundant, but what, in your opinion, makes a great mountain bike community? 
And I'm going to say besides a brewery. Yeah, right, right. That's everyone. That's everyone's answer. And it's like, ah, it is. Um, I think mountain bikers need to be integrated with the rest of the community and not so insular. Or I think the most important piece of it is to work with other outdoor recreation groups and work with other groups of all types. It goes from, do you want to be a little niche special activity in your own little corner with your own little friends and everyone knows everything about their bike and, and, and uh, has been riding every day and has Strava to prove it. Or do you, do you want to be part of mainstream? Do you want to see people out there on bikes who don't look like you? And do you want to, um, for your mayor to, Acknowledge that mountain biking is important and not just a pain in their ass little group asking for things. Like, do you want to be part of the community and integrated into other people's needs? Like, are you working on clean water? Or, you know, do you, or if, there's, if there are people working on clean water in your community, are you supporting them? Or are you just saying, well, I don't care about water. I'm a mountain biker. Well, turns out you probably need some water to go riding. So, um, so I think just looking at the bigger picture more and being more integrated. And, and if you look at the communities that are really succeeding, like Evergreen and Seattle and Trails 2000 in Durango, they have a new name. And, you know, if you look at the communities where there's real balance and real integration and it's not a constant struggle, um, I won't mention the places where that's happening. But, uh, you know, that's why. That's why, because everyone's more integrated and it's not just us against them and, and super isolated. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to throw a shameless plug in here for a previous episode that dovetails right into what you just said, which is the mayor of Knoxville, Mayor India Kincannon, yeah. a female mountain biker. Right. And Knoxville, and I've said this quite a bit, this is where they're succeeding. Exactly. I keep hearing that and I haven't been, I really want to go, but yeah, that's exactly right. It's where a lot of places are really Fruta, you know, the Benville, um, you know, Duluth is working on this. There are so many communities that are really um, up and coming and a lot of places you haven't heard, heard of what's happening in Utah and other places too. The, the NICA courses are turning rural communities into mountain bike destinations who there was nobody there who rode a bike just three years ago. Like Richfield, Utah, the people are in, in, in Utah. We have six regions now, six regions. That's four races per region. That's 24 weekends when a little town in Utah is going to get $2 million in visitation just like that from a Nike race. So yeah, it's really, it's not, it, 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 mountain bike trails are going to be in every community, not just a few. That's, that's when you know that we're, you know, part of the mainstream. Yeah. And NICA, you know, NICA is such a huge thing. It's, it's, it's so good because it's building so many future cyclists in general, uh-huh. you know, outside, I mean, it, I mean, a lot of people think of NICA as racing, but it's so many more things than racing. And it is, it's, it's normalizing what mountain biking is in, in households. Right. Right. It's definitely, well, that's what's fun about the, the Nike thing is the, the kids are getting the parents to go riding instead of the other way around. Correct. Speaking of households, so. Yeah. And now you have an aunt or an uncle or a grandpa or a grandma or some other extended family or friends that, you know, they may have heard of mountain biking, 
but now they're either doing it or at the very minimum, a fan of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. That's right. They see it as part of what their community is all about. So, so with that being said, do you have any words of wisdom, closing comments or anything you'd like to leave us with before we close this interview out? Some Ashleyisms. <laughs> um, get involved. You can't just ride and not get involved. I know that some, you know, that riding can be really individual, but it's it's really important to it is an individual because you're using someone else's dirt to go riding and you are only one person that feels ownership to that, to that piece of dirt. And so you really have to know who the land managers are, who, what's going on in your community. And it's not that painful. You can do a little trail work. You can get to know some people, but, and vote for elected officials that get this, that care about the outdoors and care about green spaces because uh, they're going to decide. And if, if you aren't, participating, then, you know, uh, you just don't get to ride off into the sunset every day. You need to spend some of that time thinking about um, how to promote what you love and, and um, especially locally, but also federally, you know, so you, you just got to pay attention to the politics. I know it's painful, especially now, but it is really important and thinking about how the people that represent you feel about, uh, green space and biking is really important to know how they feel and to and if they don't know about it get get them out there take them riding take an elected official on a bike ride that i'll leave you with that as soon as possible awesome <laughs> that's 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 great ashley I, I i really appreciate this this interview and and you taking this time i know that obviously we've talked about all the different things you have your hands in you know, so getting some of that time to to get an interview is, is super important and special to me. So I really appreciate you taking this time. Sure. Thank you for thinking of me. No problem. Well, it, it was an obvious one after talking to Rob Reed. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for all the work you're doing and talking with everyone. It's really important to think about these things and explore some of these issues a little deeper, which is really great. So. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. This podcast has been made possible by Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, Giants Ridge, Ride the Range, and has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>